Welcome to the premium sermon podcast of the Potter's House Church in Virginia Beach, affiliated with Christian Fellowship Ministries. It's Testimony Tuesday, where you're going to hear a powerful testimony of God's grace revealed in human lives. Each Tuesday, you listen to Pastor Adam interviewing pastors from around the world to share the mighty miracles that God has done in their lives to give you hope for yours. We share the stories of the men behind the messages you hear every other day on this podcast. Thanks for supporting World Evangelism with your premium subscription and enjoy today's testimony. All right, well, we are very pleased to welcome in our next guest on Testimony Tuesday. We're so glad that you've uh, come to join us on the VBPH Sermon Podcast. And we are very, very pleased to welcome in our next guest, Pastor Paul O'Neill, who is all the way from Down Under, but he's not actually there. He is a missionary in Thailand. Welcome to Testimony Tuesday, Pastor O'Neill. Well, thank you very much, Pastor. That uh, It's my privilege. Well, thank you so much for making time to join us. Uh, we have had um, a really uh, a great response to these uh, to these particular episodes of the podcast, and so I'm excited to uh, to to get to hear your story. It is good to be here. I have listened to some testimonies, and they've been very encouraging. So very valuable. Well, praise God. We uh, we we hope to be an encouragement to people uh, all around the world, and. Um, so uh, I'd love to hear, um, your, your origin story. What, what was it like for you growing up? Okay. So yeah, I'm, I'm from Australia and, um, I was born in the country in, uh, the, on the East coast of Australia. And, uh, that w- was just a, me- my memory is just a bliss of when I was very young. Uh, but, uh, when I, uh, I mean, my family were, were great, uh, loving family, a very close supportive network of relatives, especially on my mother's side. Um, but, uh, my mother died when I was about four. Uh, so that really changed the dynamic in our family. And, uh, I, because I was only four years old, uh, it was a a sad time for me, but uh, my father, my brother and sister really rallied around each other, our our other family as well. And so as a young boy, I was insulated and protected from that and really quite happy uh, there living with my dad. My dad was uh, great to me. He was uh, my, my best friend. Uh, so uh, that was all uh, good. We lived in Newcastle. My father, uh, New South Wales, my father was a truck driver and he would take me in the truck and I would sit in the passenger seat of a big truck and he would be cutting coal and moving heavy earth moving equipment around Newcastle uh, to building sites. It's a port city. So they would be transporting uh, zinc bullion and, and different uh, metals and minerals and coal to Japan or uh, to parts of Asia. So uh, well, life sounds was like an great. adventure. Yeah. Life was great. And uh, my dad really looked after me, but um, about 
uh, after a few years, my I think my father felt inadequate in raising me by himself, and he married again. And that's where the dynamic changed in my family. Uh, my stepmother had uh, three, four children of her own. One joined after they were married. So my father married again. And uh, Was it uh, just you or you had brothers and sisters before? So my older brother and sister were seven and 14 years older than me. So about a seven-year gap between the three of my siblings. Uh, And so they left home when dad married again. They basically uh, moved out. Uh, Our stepmother, after our father married again, she was quite hostile to us. And um, I guess she was unhappy uh, in herself and uh, uh, she had her own personal problems. And so um, we all felt that we were not loved. We were not used to that. We were very much loved by our father and mother when she was alive, our relatives. So I began to, at a very young age, 13, 14 years old, begin to uh, go away from home uh, and take drugs, begin to smoke dope, uh, begin to get drunk. Uh, but mum and dad, uh, my stepmother, were fighting every night. Uh, that there was a lot of uh, alcohol gambling. Uh, they and it was it was terrible. It was a really unhappy environment to be in, and so I left home and went to live with my sister uh, in the country of New South Wales. Uh, so I left my father, my stepmother, my stepbrothers and stepsister, and went to live uh, with my older sister who had left before. And uh, she had married. And what happened when I moved away from my father is I moved away from that discipline and that stability in my life. So my sister loved me and took me in, but never really provided that discipline that I needed. So at about 14 years of age, I was able to really do whatever I wanted to do. Uh, And that was not good for me. I began to drink. I began to smoke uh, cigarettes. I began to smoke uh, uh, ganja. And so I was really undisciplined. And uh, that became uh, just a downward spiral where uh, I, uh, when I, I started working, all of my money was spent on alcohol. And really, that was the only thing that I enjoyed in life. I was uh, very uh, hurt and uh, uh, looking for meaning and purpose in life. I was really lost. I, uh, the only thing that I really enjoyed was taking drugs and girls mm. and uh, drinking alcohol. I uh, was very unreliable. I uh, was not very reliable at work. I was very undisciplined in my personality. Uh, never kept a job for very long. Uh, didn't really do well in school. And so what actually happened was this got worse and worse. I could tell you about drinking parties and uh, 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 all uh, experimenting with drugs but basically I got in trouble with the police. So I also got in trouble with some dangerous people in the city in which I lived. 
and I uh, rolled a car amazingly rolled this car three or four times the roof came off and I was uh, but I'm very very drunk but actual actually unscathed I uh, was in hospital simply because I was unconscious drunk at the scene of the accident and taken to hospital the police came I was charged with dangerous driving driving under the influence of alcohol and uh went to court and got a court order that I was not allowed to drink alcohol to the excess in that town. I'd been banned from a lot of hotels and clubs, places, venues in that city. And so knowing that I was not able to live without alcohol, I left that city, which was on the east coast of Australia, and went all the way to the west coast hmm. of Australia, so the other side of the country. And sounds like looking, you were running. <laughs> I was running and I took all of my problems with me. I uh, was by myself, really, and um, trying to start again. I wanted a new start, but I actually started doing the same things all over again. I have a started couple of questions drinking. for you. Do yeah. you. At what age did you make the big move? So I was about 21 at that age okay and I, my my other question was um you, you you said that your your family you you don't remember or you, you remember that there was a lot of fighting going on obviously with your mom passing away when you were so young you probably don't have a lot of memories of her but right. I, I'm, I'm curious about if there was any kind of spiritual influence on you did 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 dad or stepmom, did they take you to church at all? Or was there any kind of a background oh, with religion? Okay, that's a great question. So we lived in a little, uh, the, the city that I lived in was very multicultural. Lots of Greeks and Polish and Yugoslavian people, Italian, uh, Irish and Swedish, people from all over the world came there to work. There was work there. It was an industrial city. And the, my family on my father's side were very religious in, in the Christian church. And my mother's uh, side of the family was Catholic, but they were from the country where I actually moved to. So where I was living with all my trouble with my father and my stepmother was the city where my father was from. And, uh, his his uh, family on his mother's side was Swedish, and they were involved in the Church of England. So that, that sounds complex, but uh, it was a beautiful little church, and I have these wonderful memories of going to church with my mum, uh, Christmas and Easter, uh, and going to Sunday school in that church, and actually, Pastor. Uh, when we were 12 year old, one, the one thing that my stepmother did, which she felt was good for me, was for me to be confirmed in the Church of England. And I had this horrible idea of not wanting, uh, of hypocrisy and, and, and of not wanting to be a hypocrite, hypocrite. So I actually decided that if I was going to be a Christian, I was going to be a real Christian. And I got confirmed in the Church of England, went to uh, Bible study for six weeks every Tuesday night, 
to prepare for the confirmation and uh, I didn't really understand the ceremony. Uh, it was a hilarious episode. The, the priest was, we're standing in the church in front of all the people in their Sunday best uh, going through the ceremony with all the boys at 12 year old. And uh, the priest asked me, did you understand what the message was about? He preached a message. And I said, no. <laughs> and he opened his eyes and looked at me. He became very worried. He said, uh, everybody's watching. I felt the pressure on me, the whole church watching. He said, do you pray, son? And uh, I thought, uh-oh. And so I lied <laughs> and told him, yes, I do. <laughs> uh, but, and so that's a funny memory looking back. But I, at 12 years old, I started going to church by myself on a Sunday morning. And the only people in the church were older people, 40, 50 and older, and their children, very young people. There were no people my age, no teenagers, none at all. I had a Sunday school class to myself. And I remember the, the Sunday school teacher, I think she was an aunt of mine on my father's side, lovely, lovely lady, just a big, old, lovely person taught Sunday school. And we were sitting outside the church on a beautiful spring day uh, on a picnic rug. And she told me how when her husband died, she told me a testimony, how uh, she was praying. She was, she was heartbroken and distressed and just uh, called out to God. And she felt a presence in her room and she felt someone come up behind her and put her hand, his hand, on her shoulder. And I was just listening to her thinking, you know, this is an unusual story, but she was such a nice person that I really listened with an open mind. And when she told me that someone put her, his hand on her shoulder, she put her hand on my shoulder and it went all over me. I felt electricity. I felt something go all over me. It was powerful. And I was so surprised something touched me. God touched me right there. I was 12 years of age. And, and I opened my eyes in shock, in surprise, knowing that it was real, that, that God was real, that all the Sunday school stories that I heard were real. It, it, I was physically tingling all over and God touched me. And I was so surprised that I'd never had that experience in the, in the classes of my confirmation in the confirmation experience in in all of my life and christian life god had not touched me in that way and on that day god touched me and so in all of the trouble in my family and in going to high school by myself i found it very difficult to live as a christian by myself in that church by myself without support and that was where i began began to leave that and church and to get into drugs and and I forgot about that experience as I was growing up in the other city where I moved to with my sister living there I'd forgotten about that and began to get into drugs and but you know what pastor it, it's a great question that you ask me and you remind me because in all that time that I was in drugs in all that time I was hardcore drinking trying to do the one thing that gave me peace, the one thing that gave me uh, uh, an escape from all of the troubles in the world and the troubles that were inside me. I think I was running away from God. 
and uh, trying to forget. And uh, what actually happened was I left uh, that city and moved to the other side of Australia and began to grow dope, became successful at that, began to make to a, grow, sorry, a bit of- Sorry, did, I didn't hear, to grow what? Began to grow dope. So I began oh, to grow ganja. Okay. Oh, you were, you were a grow, farmer. Yeah. <laughs> so we were, we were living on uh, unemployment benefit in Australia. You can get paid to look for work at that time. So, but we were also making money on the side, working on the side, working undercover and, and grow, growing gunja. And what actually happened was that I had a lot of money. I was drinking as much as I wanted, drinking a lot, uh, just living a uh, unrestrained lifestyle, uh, partying, uh, smoking a lot of gunja, taking drugs. And what actually happened was that it wasn't working anymore. I was not, I was able to drink a carton of beer, 24 cans of beer, uh, and not actually feel any, any, I would not really feel drunk. My body would be drunk. I would be intoxicated, but not feel any pleasure that I used to feel, get stoned and just feel paranoid. And I began to get very paranoid. I began to become disturbed in my mind. And I began to think that, uh, I was being watched, being watched by the government, being watched by for the dope that I was growing. I'm sure I was sure that there were satellites watching me and knew where my plants were. And so I saw, I took my dope, I harvested my dope and uh, left. I thought I'm going to go and get a job. And I went far away from there up to the north of West Australia by myself. And uh, I began to work a job. I did the only thing that I was really trained in and I'd done two years of an apprenticeship as a chef. And so I went and got a job as a cook in a seaside resort in the, the North of Western Australia, a little town by the beach and began to work. And I was working for several months and I was able to save money there. I wasn't drinking. I wasn't smoking dope stashing all this money away and after about six months i just felt so empty in everything in life drinking alcohol wasn't working for me anymore i didn't feel any pleasure in that it was the only thing that i enjoyed doing smoking dope only made me paranoid uh, and now uh, uh, being with girls i'd just been disappointed heartbroken and nothing was working for me and um now working a job and, and doing what I thought was trying to get myself together and be responsible and work a job and be a citizen and save money, that just left me empty. I was just empty. And I decided that I was going to, that there was, well, life wasn't worth living for. I just had this pain inside me, this emptiness, this futility. Uh, and I decided that I was going to take my life. I was going to have one big party and end my life, which was very cowardly. I, ra rather than uh, just end it suddenly, I, I wanted to do it while I was intoxicated and inebriated and, and in anesthetized, I was going to drink myself to death. And I drove from that country town to the biggest city in West Australia, to Perth. I was on my way there 
And on my way there, I, I started drinking and I stopped in a coastal city and I stayed a night and I went out and got drunk and I could not relate to anyone. I did not enjoy that experience. I, I was really at the end of myself. I was, uh, it was just terrible. Uh, life was terrible, that life wasn't worth living for. I woke up in the morning and I walked down the street. I knew no one in the city. I was from the other side of Australia. And uh, I went to get some water and get some fruit because I was so hungover just to revive myself. And the first, there were all these people on the street that day handing out invitations to a concert that night at a church but the first person that I bumped into was one of my good friends from the city that I came from on the other side of Australia oh quit it I was I was so surprised and she, she was with another lady and they were both pushing prams and kind of blocked the sidewalk so I looked up and saw her she was the first person I saw her and I knew her I went to school with her I used to party with her she was a good friend and she, I said, hello, we, hello, so good to see you. And she put her finger in my face and said, you need Jesus. Wow. And I, <laughs> I was shocked, but I was really lonely. And she was a good friend. And when she did that, in the past, I would have been very defensive and reacted against that because I think I was running from God. And But I thought, you know what, if Jesus is real, I need to know it. I, I just had that thought in myself. It's like, why, why not? Why not check this out? I'm going to die anyway. I'm going to end my life. Nothing I do, I don't enjoy anymore. So well, there were, they had a concert on the street that morning in a park on the street. And I watched these young guys, 19, 20 years old, singing these songs about Jesus. And I'm sitting there, I was 23 years old. I was an alcoholic, a drug addict. And I was watching these guys and these young guys preaching. He was talking so fast, he couldn't remember what he was saying. Uh, you can picture the scene. And, and, I, and then he did an altar call and he invited everyone to, that, that wanted to ask Jesus into their heart to come forward. And I'm watching all these people and three or four people went forward and I looked at them and I saw, I thought, they were Christians. They were doing that for me so that I would not feel embarrassed that if I put my hand up and went forward and I saw through it, I, I just knew what a fake was. And they weren't fake, but they were doing that as their method to uh, help people not feel embarrassed. And I just, I could see through falseness because I'd lived my life being false, everything I did. But I went back with my friend to her house and she was married and I was so shocked. Her life was changed. She wasn't drinking anymore. She was married. She wasn't smoking dope. And we were sitting on her front veranda. I was smoking cigarettes, arguing with her. I was arguing about Buddhism. I was saying Buddha could be the answer, which is funny now living in a Buddhist country. How funny. <laughs> and I didn't know what I was talking about. And I was arguing with her and talking about religion and she was trying to tell me about Jesus. And then she stopped. And this is the most profound experience of my life. This is powerful. 
she looked at me and she said, Jesus, the picture of Jesus in churches is a lie. And I could picture this picture of Jesus. And she said, do you know, Jesus was God. And, and that was the strangest thing I'd ever heard because I'd grown up in church and uh, I'd been confirmed. I never heard that Jesus was, I didn't understand what Jesus is God. She said, the Bible says Jesus is God. And because of my background, I believe that the Bible was true. I, I just did believe that the Bible was the gospel and that, well, okay, if the Bible says Jesus is God, it must be true. And then she began to tell me how Jesus died. She began to describe the events leading up to the crucifixion, that Jesus had his beard pulled out. He was blindfolded and, and beaten and mocked and ridiculed and uh, that he was whipped almost to death. And then he was made to carry the cross up to uh, the place where he was crucified and he was nailed to that cross. And as he was hanging on the cross, they taunted him and mocked him and said, if you are the son of God, save yourself and come down. And the, as she told me that, I suddenly couldn't hear her voice anymore. And the most profound experience happened to me. I think, I don't know what happened. I can't describe it. Time stood still. And in a moment of time, I got a Bible study by the Holy Spirit. God opened my mind. It was like my head, my mind, my eyes were open. And I understood that Jesus was God, that he was, that this was real. That I could see this and that, that Jesus died upon the cross for me. That, that, it, that it was not about religion, that it was my sin. I crucified Jesus, that he died for me as an alcoholic, that he died for me as that person sitting there that day with no meaning and no hope and no purpose who had, who had turned away from him and rejected him and turned to sin and done all sorts of evil things that I, I am ashamed to talk about or would be ashamed to talk about. And I realized that Jesus was the Lord, God, died upon the cross. And I had a, 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 the stub of a homemade cigarette in my yellow fingers. I was a drawn out, empty alcoholic at 23 years old. I looked up at her and she was looking at me and I said, I'll do it. I'll do it. And her jaw dropped and, and her eyes opened up. And, and she, she was speechless. And we both knew what that meant. And, and on that moment, I believed that I was saved. I believed that I was born again. I believed I, that I had made Jesus Lord of my life, that I had confessed him as Lord. I went to a concert that night in the church. And uh, it was the most wonderful experience of my life. I saw hundreds of young people. Uh, the church was full of young people that were happy, that liked each other, that welcomed me. I was blown away. I could not believe it. They did an altar call. And although that same feeling was not happening in the altar call at the concert, I put my hand up and went down to the front because I wanted to become a member of that church. That was why I went to the altar call. Uh, I was in. I was all in. I was sold. Wow. And, uh, oh, man, powerful experience.
That that's absolutely remarkable. Uh, I I picked up on something that you had mentioned a couple of times as you were describing your life before this big event, which was you you stated many times that you were alone, that you were on your own, that you were kind of wandering on on your own, and and so it's remarkable to me how God uses different methods to reach different people, and in your case, he he. He spoke to you through someone that you were already familiar with, and right. maybe because you were in such a lonely moment. Do you think that that, that had uh, any effect on, on, on how you were brought into the kingdom? Absolutely, Pastor. Absolutely. The, uh, the loneliness that I was feeling was uh, a, a big, black, empty hole. And uh, it, normally... I would fill that emptiness by going to a bar and drink alcohol and have that Dutch courage to talk to people. Uh, but that was not working anymore. I, I was not relating to people anymore. I went to a bar the night before and there were all these young surfies with sun bleached blonde hair and pink t-shirts. And I was a boot wearing blue jean, uh, wearing bike motorcycle riding, you know, leather, black leather jacket. I just could not relate to these people. So you're right, spot on. That, and they were dear friends, but they'd also had a, a, an experience that was that was profound. I I could not understand why they would want to get married because the whole group of people that I associated with, and they were in that group we saw no point in living past 21. We thought that the world was going to end, that there was going to be a nuclear war, that there was no point in being married or working a job or doing any of that. We, we were kind of of the punk rock generation, the heavy rock generation. They saw no purpose in life. And, and at 23, I thought I've, I'm, I'm expired. I'm past my use my day. I want to die. And I saw someone who was a friend of mine who had purpose in their life, who had children, who was married and happy. And that church, that church was full of people with sincere friendships who welcomed me. It was a, a powerful thing uh, to see. And uh, I went to church the next morning and uh, there was a big old preacher up there from America preaching. He was a v Vietnam veteran. He'd been in the Vietnam War. He was a tank commander. He'd had a, uh, a, a, some sort of device exploded near him and he was blind in one eye and deaf in one ear. He had shrapnel marks in his face. And I saw him up there preaching that morning and I thought, you know what? He was not an articulate speaker. He was speaking from the King James Version of the Bible struggling to articulate those words and i thought you know what if he can do that i can do that <laughs> that was that was it it kept i was captivated by this church wow and it was the church for me and that was the potter's house incredible um i am wondering um give us a sense of when the, you said you were 23 years old what what year was that 1986 okay and so uh, for for those of us who are not familiar with the Australian Fellowship and the history there, um, give describe you know like what was 
what was the state of the fellowship there? And and also I'd like to hear about, you know, what was the church like? What was the atmosphere like that you got saved in and then started living for God? Well, well, uh, at that, I got saved on the 8th of November, 1986. It was a Saturday and uh, I'll never forget that day. And uh, the church was just a thriving, pulsing revival. There were over 200 people in that church. It was a, 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 not a big city. It was a city of about 20,000 people. Uh, and so this was about four hours drive north of the capital city, Perth where the church is now in Beachborough. So it, it was a secondary city and they had had breakout revival and the church was full of young men. Uh, and, and all of those young men were trying to be married, but there were so many young men getting saved uh, that there were not enough women for the young men. So there, there were, a, but when I got saved, the church had uh, solid disciples there were i can't remember exactly but more than 10 or 12 bible studies with young married couples who were all called to preach there were other young men who uh were on fire disciples and uh the, I, I just was uh welcomed into that church i stepped into revival and they had grace upon me I was rough on the edges. Actually, Pastor, the interesting thing is that I, in my story, I mentioned that I was working as a cook in a seaside resort. It was another four hours from that church. I I'd, I'd drove, drove, driven my car four hours to that city and stopped that night and got drunk that night and in the morning got saved. So I'd stayed with my friend and went ch to church the next morning, but then drove back to my job. And what I did was on Sunday mornings, I would drive four hours to church. Oh, wow. Uh, not every Sunday, uh, but I did that because there wasn't a regular church service in the little coastal city. It's a little holiday town, not a city, a little it, it, it had a church that once a month a pastor would come from four hours away to do a service in that church. And he was an Anglican minister. Uh, and he was a good guy, actually. But on the so, but to go to the church in Geraldton, I would drive four hours to go to church. And I did that several times before God, God got a hold of my heart. And, and I realized that it was the will of God for me to move to Geraldton, to that city, to join that church and become a disciple. Wow. And so, so you, you made that decision to kind of leave everything behind and go pursue uh, what was happening there. It reminds me of you know, the, the call that Jesus made to his disciples, come and follow me. Right. And so I was a stubborn young man when I got saved and I had a profound experience when I got saved, but the other profound there were several profound, powerful experiences in my journey. One was the decision to join the church. I had traveled to the conference in Perth and 
attended that conference. And at that conference, one of the disciples in that church where I'd gotten saved confronted me in the conference because I was still living in that coastal city. And he said to me, God wants you to join the church and be a disciple. You need to get be in the church where you got saved in. And I was arguing with him in the conference. In the, uh, it, it, it was actually after the service where he was talking to me and there were people milling all around. And, and he showed me in the Bible where it said that God places members in the body as it pleases him. And I was really out of the will of God by being a Christian by myself in that little town where there was no church. I, I was not really a disciple. I was uh, saved and born again and doing really doing my own thing. And he, I had this argument with him and I, when he showed me in the Bible that it said that I said, I'll do it. It was similar to that experience where I said to my friend, the girl, I'll do it. And, and when I said that to him, wow, I'd been struggling. Something was wrong and I didn't know what it was. I'd kind of lost my joy a little bit. And when I said, I, I'll do it, this, it came back, this joy of, of salvation came all over me again. And I, <laughs> in the middle of all these people at the conference, I grabbed this guy and hugged him. And he was a real man discipleship at the church in Geraldton had a real strong male pastor. It was full of young men. He didn't like being hugged by a... <laughs> by a <laughs> and so he felt very awkward, and I, I realised that. But I was so happy. I just wanted to hug someone that I knew the will of God for my life. I made a decision there, and that was a difficult decision because I had to leave my job. I had to tell my boss that I was leaving there. I moved four hours and moved to a place where I had no place to stay. I had no job, uh, but God opened a door, gave me a place to stay. The church welcomed me. I got another job and I, I actually sold my car. I had an old car. I sold my car so that I would not travel anymore and leave that church. <laughs> it was a crazy thing to do, but it was like burning my bridges. It was like me saying, this is it. I'm planting myself in this church. I'm not traveling anymore. I don't want to travel anymore. I don't want to wander. I, I want to be a disciple, see what God's got for my life. Wow. And, and so I, um, if you could describe for us, like, uh, I, I, I don't know a whole lot about the history of the Australian fellowship. Like I know that Pastor Mitchell was there and, but, but, uh, when you were there in, in 1986, you got saved, and like uh, there was a you you said that there's a conference happening in Perth. Uh, that must have been a baby church out of the Perth, or maybe you can just describe for us, for those who don't know, what was going on in the in the country as a whole. Okay, so uh, the the Perth Church and the Geraldton Church, those two churches that I've been talking about, are in Western Australia. They they had revival really from the beginning the planting of those churches a lot of young people getting saved uh, and so there had been some different pastors in both of those churches I won't go into the details of those pastoral changes but some of those changes were unsettling to me and by time chance and coincidence I 
had found myself in the middle of both of those pastoral changes. And that was a little bit unsettling for me. And um, so uh, what actually happened was Pastor Mitchell had been in the Perth Church in the beginning, but um, many years later, when I was in the Perth Church, I'd moved to the Perth Church with my family and was uh, working in Perth, that's Beachborough, the, the conference centre, the main church in the capital city of West Australia. I was just living for God. I was a Bible study leader there in, in Perth. I'd, gotten, I'd gone back to university and become a dietitian, was working in a hospital. I was a clinical dietitian working with teams of doctors, nurses, pharmacists, health professionals. And I, I'd, although I'd been a pastor for five years before, I kind of come back into the Perth church and I was, I just was in status quo, not really seeking the will of God for my life. And the Perth church had been through some pastoral leadership that had kind of, well, it had really not flowing with the vision, with our vision of our fellowship and was not really in that, it, it didn't have that pulse and that life. And so I just had lost that vision myself. And it was not really in our, our church, in our headship there. And Pastor Mitchell came back to the Perth church and I found myself with Pastor Mitchell as my pastor. And that sounds pretty from good. The, oh man. So there was a church split and it was a very uh, uncertain time, but I, I just felt the, uh, the breath of God in the church. I felt Pastor Mitchell come in. I just thought it was the best thing that ever happened. So some people had left, but thanks to some very strong council leaders, some very good people in the church uh, who I could name, but uh, they, they are heroes. And, and the church basically largely, although a, a lot of people left, a large percentage of the church stayed. And Pastor Mitchell took that church and, man, the church just had revival. Uh, we've, we had not long after that, we had a conference. It was a miracle even being able to have a conference. Uh, and after six months, it was the best six months of my life with a pastor. Pastor Mitchell became a friend of mine. He became a father to me. He became uh, my pastor. But then Pastor Payne took the church and from there things just exploded. The young men in the church uh, just rose up uh, and uh, it it became the thriving church that it is today. It's been nationalized uh, with an Australian pastor. And so thank God for Pastor Mitchell and Pastor Payne. Pastor Payne was there for calendar years. I think it might even be 12 years. Uh, uh, forgive me if I'm wrong, but uh, he gave his life. Uh, he, he and Sister Janice, Tom Payne and Janice Payne gave their life to the Australian Fellowship and the Australian Fellowship now is in good hands, planting churches, planting churches overseas. And I'm here in Thailand because uh, God saved me uh, again through Pastor Mitchell and Pastor Payne. Uh, 
I don't know where I'd be without those two men. Praise God. Uh, That's a great testimony. Uh, I'd like to go back a little bit and just um, talk about the what you, you said initially when you first got saved, that you saw someone who was inarticulate and uh, and still God was using him and that inspired you. And I'm just curious how you got from that point to knowing that you were called to be a pastor. So that, that pastor uh, actually the, w- was pastoring that church when I got saved. Uh, I knew a short time later, I went to the conference in the capital city, Perth, Beachborough, which was in Scarborough in those days. And that pastor, uh, we had a pastoral change and he left and another pastor took the church. And so uh, he, he was there for only six months also. And then another pastor took the church and uh, I felt called to preach from uh, the, I think from the moment that I got saved, probably just that I wanted everybody else in the world to felt what I'd felt. I wanted everybody else. I wanted, I wanted actually, I wanted to talk people into getting saved. I was kind of forcing people to try, try and get saved. I was not very sensitive. I was, uh, I was dangerous, <laughs> but I, I was just filled with happiness and joy and wanted everyone to get saved. So I, I think I felt called to preach just from that feeling that I had of salvation and then seeing someone who was obviously just an ordinary man, just like a disciple, like a, like the, a fisherman of Je, uh, Jesus' disciples. And he was, you know, a tank commander. He was an unskilled speaker, but he was anointed. And, and, I, and then I, the, the next pastor that took the church, he was much more skilled and articulate and a very powerful preacher. He was the leader of the Australian Fellowship. Uh, in a way, he took the Australian church in Perth and he was our pastor for six months. And he was the guy ultimately that took the church in another direction later on, which I was not really wanting to go into the details of that, but uh we had several partial changes in the the church that I was got saved in north of Perth four hours from Perth and uh those pastoral changes were kind of unsettling for me but before that happened uh one of the pastors came to me and asked me to take over a church in the far north of western australia and I said I'll do anything for god I'll do anything so although I didn't really feel called to do that i just was willing to do anything for god and i took that church i was there for five years uh it was a small country town a mining town in the north west of western australia so i was a pastor for five years uh and i went back in for redirection i was in redirection for more than 20 years until pastor mitchell came Oh wow! So that's, really, that's remarkable. That's uh, you don't hear that too often. Yeah, really, and and that was kind of uh, I was unsettled by all that happened, the pastoral changes, uh, the loss of faith in the in the headship that I that I'd had. I didn't in the beginning. I didn't have Pastor Mitchell and Pastor Payne as my pastor, uh, and I didn't have that strong leadership that I had, but. 
just, uh, you know, we had a good, solid fellowship church that was still strong and good foundations. And so I still had that powerful experience of my salvation experience and the discipleship that I'd had. So I stayed saved and just thought that, you know, maybe God, the will of God for my life is just to be a Bible study leader and be a help to, you know, my part, you know, Pastor Mitchell, I, I wanted to. And so, but when man, Pastor Mitchell came and then when Pastor Payne came, I felt stirred. I, I wanted to, I went to a conference uh, when uh, Pastor Payne was the pastor and Pastor Elliot, who is now the leadership pastor, the, the pastor of the Perth Church, he preached a sermon uh, called Relaunch about God calling men back into the ministry who had failed or who had felt that they would fail, who were shipwrecked and used that illustration of a, a, a ship a wrecked ship being refloated and relaunched to go out again and do the will of God. And there was a whole series of coincidences and events that were impossible to be coincidences where God really showed me that he was calling me to preach. And then it actually became Thailand. And uh, I just, that conference when he preached that sermon, Pastor, Man, it was another one of those experiences. He was preaching and it was like the lights went down and time stood still and I was the only person in the room and and uh, the spirit of God came all over me, that this idea of that this the grace of God that in all of my failure of my life, in all of the, the disappointments, in all of the people that I'd failed, in everything that I you know, that that God would call me to preach again, that God would want to use me, I was so overwhelmed by that idea that I broke down into tears. But I didn't want anyone to know, so I pretended that I was uh, blowing my nose and ran out of the building. And we had uh, the men's toilets were outside in uh, portable loos, portable toilets demountable toilets. I, I don't know what you call them in America, but I ran outside and ran in, locked myself inside of them and were just weeping, thinking that God would call me to preach the gospel again. The grace of God that he would use my life. Wow. So you were recovered. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, uh... I, I was, I was, re it was not uh, redirection. It was resurrection. Pastor. <laughs> That's well. That's what God does, I suppose. Um, I so we know that uh, um, that in our fellowship that uh, w we don't send single men out to go pastor. And one uh, conversation we've neglected is is your your wife and your family. And I'm I'm wondering um, how that came to be, and um, where where has she been along this journey? You once again, you have asked the great question to really finish my story and really give glory to God. And so pastor, I mentioned before being so alone. Well, the first person I met in Western Australia, when I escaped and ran away from all of my problems and my alcoholism, the first person I met in West Australia was a girl named Val. And, uh, 
she was a hippie girl living in the forest in West Australia, growing marijuana. And I thought that was cool. Uh, and you so had something in common. <laughs> I did. And she was actually with another man at that time. Uh, they were not married. They were just hippies, but they had a little girl and uh, they were growing dope. And I used to uh, go to their place and smoke dope with them. But I was living in another house in the forest growing marijuana. And uh, I had two friends and we used to have wild drunken parties. And uh, th this little girl who I'd met, Val, she would come and have parties with us because her husband was very bad to her. He was uh, uh, unfaithful to her. And eventually she ran away from him. And when she ran away from him, she came to me. And one night when I was drunk, uh, in one of our drunken parties, she uh, came and we did what drunken alcoholics, non-Christians do before they're married and we slept together. Uh, not long after that, I left there and went up to the north of Western Australia, uh, worked for about six months, had that salvation experience, went back to that town where I was working and wrote Val a letter, the one friend really that I had in Western Australia. I wrote her a letter and I said, I've become a Christian and I know and you know you're a sinner and you have a black heart and you need to become a Christian and get saved too. I wrote her a letter, <laughs> but not very sensitive. She wrote me back a letter and said, I'm pregnant. Oh, wow. And the baby is yours. And so I'd been a Christian uh, about six months and she, uh, in about three months, she was going to have a baby and the baby was mine. And for the first time in my life, I was faced with a responsibility that I did not run away from. Praise God. And uh, I, I didn't really want to get married. Uh, that was like I would be marrying someone that I'd, I, I did not want to marry. Like that's not my choice. That's like, wait a minute, God, you're choosing this for me. This is not me choosing. This is not. So I had a problem with being stubborn and self-will, uh, which is a lot of alcoholics do. And so I drove down to visit Val, uh, gave her some money. She was living in a mobile home. I said, that just won't do. She was going to have a baby in the forest by the beach, uh, like a natural birth, a real hippie style. I said, that won't do. I hired her a farmhouse out in the country so she could have the least have the baby in a house. She got a midwife. Turns out the midwife is a Christian. Witnessed to her. And I told her the story that I had been told, that my friend told me, that the picture of Jesus was a lie, that he was beaten. As I, I, I'm, I'm, I could see something happening to her. I could see tears in her eyes. I'm telling her this story. Jesus was whipped. He was nailed to that cross. He, he died on the cross for you. She started to cry. And I'm, I could 
smell blood. I'm like a shark <laughs> moving in for the kill. I'm going to get this good. She's going to be a Christian today. I'm going to make it happen. And a voice. I um, don't know how to describe this voice. Spoke to me and said, that's enough. And this voice you don't say no to. It was like I couldn't say anymore. It was, that was it. Uh, uh, that was enough. That's enough. I was like, okay, I left it. And so I left her. I went back to my church, which was a five-hour drive away. She's living in the country. And she went to church and became a Christian by herself. So it wasn't me forcing her. None of our friends would think that I had forced her into it by the strength of my personality, that she had made this decision for herself. So that was important for her own faith to decide that. As it turns out, by a strange series of coincidences, I had I moved from that place where I was working as a cook to the church where I'd gotten saved. And I, when I visited my friend Val and told her about Jesus, I'd told her about this church where I'd gotten saved, how fantastic it was, and she decided to move to that church. So we both moved to that church. <laughs> and, Perfect. You know, there's there's all <laughs> you, there's all these young people in that church looking at me on one side of the church, looking at her on the other side of that church, with two little children. One of them was a new baby that was mine, and everybody in the church knew what was obviously needed to happen, except me. I was the only one who did not realize that that was the <laughs> thing that should happen next and so people were kind of dropping hints to me and that only made it worse I was very you know I had not made this decision myself I, I had not come to this you know decision myself that that was what I wanted to do and I, I, once again I'd lost that joy that that I'd had in my salvation and and I was wrestling with something and I did not know what it was wrestling with it and and I had I was actually not happy and it was strange I was doing everything that I knew to do to be a Christian and I was working as a cook in that city where my where my church was where Val was living I was mopping the floor late at night after a, a restaurant service and I was wrestling with God and and I was mopping the floor and I just gave up. I just said, all right, I'll do it. And I mean, this is unbelievable. The joy came all over me. I was dancing, started dancing around the kitchen, jumping up and down. Uh, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit, but I just felt the joy of God flood my heart that I was, that I was doing what God wanted me to do. And I was happy, I was doing, I was so happy to be doing what God wanted me to do. I called her, I said, I need to talk to you. I picked her up in my car, drove her up to the lookout. I said, we're getting married. <laughs> that was, that was, that was my uh, attempt to ask my bride to marry me. Yeah, smooth. She wasn't so thrilled with my approach. And I said, look, I, I'm sorry, but I think 
it's what God wants me to do. And I think it's what God wants you to do. And I think, you know, it's what God wants us both to do. And she looked at me and she started crying and tears in her eyes and said, yes. So we got married. Uh, we, we, there was a legal requirement of how many days you had to wait to get married. But like, this was what God wanted me to do. I just wanted to do it now. I went to the pastor, said, I want to get married now. He said, legally, we have to wait a few weeks. I said, can we move it forward? He, he kind of, I won't tell you uh, live over this broadcast, but we got married as quickly as I could. <laughs> I think I bought, I think I bought $200 worth of roast chicken. Uh, we had a potluck dinner in the church. We had a Jesus people wedding and we got saved. And it was, uh, it was the best day of my life. My salvation the decision to move to the Geraldton Church and become a disciple and the decision to marry my wife and the decision to become a missionary to that were the four best days of my life. And we've talked about all those four there. And I have to say, Pastor, by your very wise questions led me directly to answer all those four questions. Well, praise God. I, um, I'm just sitting here with a big smile plastered on my face because your enthusiasm is so infectious, even, uh, even these years later. How, how long have you been married now? So th this is to the glory of God. I mentioned before that I'd never really completed anything. I, never com I, I did high school, but I never really completed it the exam i never really completed my apprenticeship as a chef uh everything i did i really didn't last at i've been saved i i got saved on the 8th of november 1986 this november it'll be 35 years we've been married 34 years um and uh to the glory of god god's uh one of the strengths of our testimony is our marriage one of the strengths of our testimony in thailand is our marriage marriages don't do well in thailand there's a lot of uh orphans born in thailand you can imagine uh, lots of problems in this nation uh, there's a lot of marital unfaithfulness a lot of white men that come here have thai wives or just have thai girlfriends uh, so I thank God for my marriage. I thank God for my wife. He's the bride that God gave me. I know that that's, um, doesn't sit well with a lot of people, but God really helped me, chose my wife. I thank God that uh, I was able to be a father to my children um, and uh, that uh, uh, that was the best decision that I ever made, those four decisions that we talked about this morning. Well, let, let's talk a little bit more if, as we close this about the, the, the fourth one, which was to become a missionary to Thailand. And, you know, that kind of a decision doesn't come from nowhere. But I think that you described after having Pastor Mitchell uh, uh, being able to, to be close to him for a time and then Pastor Tom Payne. And uh, I guess I'd like to hear how it was that you had a vision for Thailand and how you made a decision to to become a, a missionary yes good question so when i was a new disciple in even in that first church we 
had a vision for Asia. We thought that Australia was strategically placed there in Asia to reach China and uh, all of those countries. And many people thought the brothers, the disciples thought that they would go to China or Indonesia. And for some crazy reason, I just thought that I would go to Thailand and uh, even started to learn about Thailand at that time, forgot about it over the years through all the difficulties. But over the years, I began to read about uh, a revival that happened in Burma and the mountains of Northern Thailand with a tribal people, an incredible revival amongst the Karen people who had a legend about a white skinned man who would bring them the book that that would show them the way back to God. I was just thousands and thousands of people, tribal people who'd never met a missionary, uh, became, became saved, became Christians. I was fascinated with that story, uh, became interested in Thailand again. Uh, and, uh, when, when, after that conference where I had that experience where God called me again to relaunch, where God called me again to preach the gospel again, I went to Pastor Payne. I said, Pastor, I'm all in. He, he looked at me and, and he was, uh, I, I think he couldn't believe it because uh, of where I'd come from. And uh, there were lots of other young men in our church who were stepping up. I thought that I was the last in line. I thought that I was the least likely to be uh, sent to be a missionary. He said, well, do a Bible, put your name down for a Bible study. I was surprised when I was chosen to be the Bible study leader. I didn't think highly of myself. I, uh, uh, but uh, when I was doing that in this whole period of time, uh, the church just began to come alive under the leadership of Pastor Tom Payne and, and it was just driving evangelism, Bible study, outreaches, and uh, these young men, I couldn't keep up with them. You, you know, they're skilled. They've grown up in church. They've got uh, musical skills, and I just thought, who am I? And so in that atmosphere, there was I walked up the back of church one Sunday morning, and there was that, this Asian guy sitting there by himself. And that was unusual because normally you could not get past all the disciples and all the Bible study ladies who would invite a visitor to their Bible study. And he was there by himself. I said hello. Turns out he was Thai from Thailand. And he and I asked him, I, he said, I'm, uh, where are you from? He said, I'm Thai, I'm Karen. And I was fascinated. I, I, I didn't know that Karen people could be Thai too. I thought they were only Burmese. Became a friend with him. He, uh, I prayed a sinner's prayer with him that Sunday morning. I, he was in my Bible study, uh, began to follow up on him. He was a new convert. And uh, he said to me one morning, I'm going back to Thailand to visit my family. I, I didn't, before I thought about it, I said, can I come? So I came to Thailand uh, spying out the land. And I thought, you know what? We could we could have a church here. We'll, we'll go, we need a church here. We need a fellowship church here. Uh, uh, six months later, I took my wife with me. We came back with that same man with his wife. And we looked around Thailand with my wife just to see if she could live here. She was all in. I went to Pastor Payne. I said, Pastor Payne, 
God's calling me to Thailand. His head went back. You know, he's really tall. His eyes opened up. He seemed to grow even taller. Uh, and we talked about that. And he, he had known a little bit about Thailand in the past, how missionaries have not been that successful here. And uh, he wasn't really enthusiastic about the idea. And so I just left it with him. I walked away and in my heart, I just knew, I just, I don't know how, I knew that I was going to be a missionary in Thailand. And uh, uh, the, I was in a conference and uh, my phone rang and Pastor Payne called me in the office and he said, are you ready? We'll go to Thailand. We'll send you to Thailand. And so uh, I thank God. I believe that God has uh, opened a door for us. Pastor, if you can hear me, I don't hear you anymore. Change the world. I can't describe everything about, but this is Thailand's time. Young people are open to the West. They are open to learning English. They are not, they are moving away from Buddhism. There is a big vacuum in Thailand because Buddhism has no answers for people. There is no God. There is no hope. There is no afterlife. There is no meaning or purpose to life, no future. This is Thailand's time. So if you're there listening, uh, pastor, uh, disciple, this is Thailand's time. Uh, you can come to Thailand as a tourist. On a tourist visa, you can convert to other visas and stay here, uh, get a, and stay here long term and start a church in Thailand, do a work for God. If there are Thai disciples, Burmese disciples, Chinese disciples, now is the time for you to go back to your country. Now is the time. Jesus is coming back. We don't have time to wait. The mission field, there is much more land to be taken. Uh, we need to uh, send people uh, into the mission field. Amen. Thank you so much for that call. We, we need to hear that. And um, uh, as, we, as we close this out, Pastor, I have just a couple of questions that I think would be important for our listeners. Um, you, you spoke about how there was a time that you endured some difficult pastoral changes and leadership difficulties. And I wonder if you would just take a moment to, to talk to people who are in the middle of going through something like that and, and what, what kind of takeaways you had that, that you think would be helpful. A good question, Pastor. It can be a very difficult time and, and very unsettling. And uh, I uh, had had some good disciples. And so I believe that uh, it is important not to judge too quickly. Don't listen to slander. Don't believe everything that you hear about headship. Uh, and uh, we, we have, a, we have a, a, a pathway that we can follow that is biblical. Uh, so just the first thing that I would say is, uh, uh, like David said, uh, you know, don't, don't touch the Lord's anointed. Um, we have a headship. We have a leadership. We have a fellowship. We have a council. We have a pathway that you can bring your dispute 
whether it's about another brother or whether it's about anyone in the church or even about a, a leader in the church, uh, even a pastor, we have a pathway to go through. Don't judge quickly. Uh, don't talk to too many other people. Go to that person. Go to that person and talk to them. Look at Matthew chapter 18. We have that pathway. It might even be in the back of our fellowship churches. But um, I, I stayed in our fellowship churches through those times. And it is with great sadness, the pastors that I once, that I loved, uh, that, that, were, that were once on fire for God, I've watched their lives uh, go off track. I've watched their lives become a, a wreck. Uh, by leaving the fellowship and leaving the vision and almost invariably the people that have left our fellowship that have rebelled against our fellowship even though they thought they were right even though they felt so right in their in the wrong that was said against them in the wrong that was done against them I wouldn't I've seen their lives become destroyed or derailed or their marriage destroyed their church destroyed many of those people are not in churches serving god today so many of those people sadly the people who followed them and left the church in rebellion left and so sometimes pastor it is a good question that you ask and sometimes it can feel what really hurt me was that I felt like I was in a place where there was no right thing to do. I felt like it was wrong to do this and it was wrong to do that. I, I, I could see that sometimes we are, we, live, we are imperfect people in an imperfect world, in an imperfect church, pastored by an imperfect person. And I think that we need grace on each other and i think that we need forgiveness and so we i i could see that sometimes people are wronged and, and they feel that because of that they have been wronged they feel right but i would just say that to rebel and to speak against headship and to lead others against in rebellion against headship or against our church, two wrongs don't make a right. It, it, it is, we need forgiveness and we need to follow that pathway and we need to trust that God is the judge, that God will, that God is the only righteous judge, that he has all the information, he has all the details. And every time someone who hurts you, every time someone who says something that offends you, remember what Pastor Mitchell said, that behind every, every hurt, behind every problem is a need. Every time someone offends you, every time someone annoys you, there's probably someone, something hurting them. They have a need. They need Jesus. They need forgiveness. Have grace upon them. Have grace upon your pastor. Pray for your pastor. It's a difficult job. 
pray, pray for your pastor and stick with your pastor. Stand by your pastor. And if your pastor's wrong, go through the process. If I'm wrong, I want to go through that pastor process where my pastor will correct me. I want to come back to that place where I can, I'm like David, I can say, God, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit within me. So all of us can be wrong. People in the church, Bible study leaders, uh, people in your Bible study, disciples, pastors, assistant pastors, leadership pastors, we can all make mistakes and we all need to be together, stick together. The one that is against us is the devil. The one that wants us to talk against each other is the one who is hidden, who comes in like a serpent, slithering in, slandering, wanting us to speak against each other. Don't listen to him. Uh, go through the process uh, where we uh, go to a, take a council member with you, take two or three council members with you, uh, take a Bible study leader with you. And uh, if I'm wrong and my pastor's right, I want to know that can be the case. I think I'm right and I'm not. I want to know if I'm wrong. I want to be right with God and go through that process. And so I think that has kept our fellowship in good standing. And I would, I would look at history. Uh, every time there's been a rebellion, those rebels have been swallowed up and, and uh, mm, into destruction. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you're, you're right. That That's true. And uh, I, I didn't mean to cut you off if you had more to say about that. Oh, well, I, I, I think I would leave that there, Pastor. I, that's just my personal experience. I would think, touch not the Lord's anointed, uh, go through the pathway of reconciliation. Jesus talked about Matthew chapter 18. If someone has a problem, go to them, talk to them, tell you them you love them. Behind that problem is a need. Don't judge them. If they won't listen to you, go with your Bible study leader, go with your pastor. If the problem is with your pastor, go with your counsel. I thank God we have that pathway, Matthew chapter 18, that we can go through and that we can stick together through this. There, there are difficult times ahead and uh, the, the enemy is not your pastor. The enemy is not your wife or your husband. The enemy is not your Bible study leader. The enemy is the devil. He, Satan, his name is against, and he is the slanderer. And so we'll stick together, and God is good, and we're going to make heaven our home. Amen. You've been very generous with your time and with your experience, and I really appreciate that. And at, this, at, the, uh, at the risk of uh, maybe asking one too many questions, I got one more for you, because I was uh, amazed when you said that you, you had pastored for, for five years in a, in a small town, and no doubt, as, as anybody who has a, a, the first pastoral experience is a huge learning curve, and then when you came back into the mother church where there was some turbulence happening there, and you, you said that you were basically in redirection for 20 years, and <laughs> I think that there are some interesting lessons that you might be able to share with people who might be in a similar situation or or those who have been out to pastor and didn't have a, a great experience and uh, maybe you can can help them to navigate those those 
those times of redirection and, and how to perceive the calling and, you know, uh, maybe you could encourage them that, uh, that there's more for them in the future. Yeah, well, that, that is a great question and I can uh, encourage you, I guess, from I've made many mistakes and they are great learning experiences from me and I hope that people would be able to avoid the mistakes that I made. Uh, and this is what I would say to anyone, even in ministry, if you feel tired and you feel like a failure and you feel like uh, you have nothing more to give, that that is a lie from hell. If you are called uh, God, the, the gifts and the calling of God uh, are without God never, never gives up on you. He, he, who he calls, he equips. He never repents from his calling. And so our, our ministry, all that we do, whether you're serving in the church, whether you're in, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in serving in the church, in music ministry, whatever ministry you're in, whether it's a pastor or an assistant pastor, our, our ministry is, a, a gift from God. What we do, we do in the gifting of God. And it, it is it is God that gives us the strength and the energy to do what we do and the grace that we do. And so when we have no more to give, there's a lot more that God can give to us. And so I would I would say, one, wherever you are, whether you're in redirection or whether you're not there but are thinking, that might be where you need to go. And sometimes it is. Talk about it with your pastor. But I would say don't give up. Don't step back from your commitments of faith. Don't step back from your service unless you have to, unless for the best, for a period of time, for whatever reason. But the, 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 our ministry commitments are often interwoven with our faith and our connection with our grace from God and that is what keeps us going and that can be a, a savior so if you do go back in for redirection uh, do everything that you can that you would uh, do as if you were in the church pastoring uh, ask your pastor what you can do for him uh, be in prayer uh, be in outreach uh, be an usher, uh, assist people, uh, assist other people, serve people and find the church, the find the need in the church that is not being met. So the thought that comes to mind is that I, I was, I felt like a failure and I felt like I had nothing more to give. Uh, and, uh, uh, I was so touched that God would call me again. And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to serve in the church and, and see what God will do. And so I went out of my way to find the people in the church that no one else would talk to, that no one else would follow up. I would follow up the people that were not cool. I hope none of them are listening and, and they think that I'm talking about them. But I would follow up the people who were lonely, the people who were by themselves and no one would talk to them. I would, I would uh, um, take them out to dinner, minister to them, find the need in the church and, and, and 
follow the, up those people. And so I would, I would not go back from your commitment because every step that you take in your faith, every step in your Christian life, every step of the way, the enemy will oppose you. He will oppose you at a new commitment. He will oppose you when you decide to start going to prayer. He will oppose you. He will put something impossible. He will oppose you when you begin to tithe. He will send bills to intimidate you. He will oppose you when you take become an assistant Bible study leader, a Bible study leader, when you go on outreach, when you begin to witness to people in Saturday morning outreach, when you decide to witness to someone at work, someone will abuse you. He will try to intimidate you with fear and anger and, and intimidate you with scientific arguments for which you have no answer to. Don't let the devil intimidate you. Don't let tiredness or failure intimidate you. Keep going in what you believe is your commitment to God. Work through that. Ask God to help you. God, by his grace, will heal you, strengthen you, equip you, uh, help you through that. And uh, I, I was shocked. I, I remember being in the church doing what I, I, everything that I thought was right, and sometimes it, do, it was just wrong because sometimes – there is no right thing to do, it seems. Life puts impossible situations before us. And, and that hurt me that I felt like I'd hurt my friends. But keep serving God. Keep doing your commitment. The Bible is full of heroes of the faith who actually failed. They all failed. And their stories are in there for our encouragement that God uses ordinary people like us. So don't back down in your commitment, whatever it might be. Keep serving God. I hope that answers your question, Pastor. If it didn't, please re-clarify it for me. No, I, it's it's wonderful, and I, I appreciate that uh, that you've taken this time and the effort and um, to 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 fully you know go through your your thoughts and your thinking, and it's been very inspiring. I think you've preached the equivalent of about four or five sermons, so it's it's, <laughs> it's very very helpful for a lot of people, Praise including God. myself. And I appreciate that. Is I wonder if you could just share maybe one or two things that our audience can pray for specifically right now where you are there in Thailand. Well, thank you so much for that. Uh, pray against a spirit of idolatry and stubbornness. And so that's a, a, a revelation that I have. Bind the spirit of stubbornness and idolatry. Pray that God would soften people's hearts. Idolatry is a hard-heartedness toward God. And pray that uh, God would uh, just... Um, Help us, give us wisdom, all of the things that you would normally pray for. Uh, pray that God would give us favor with the authorities uh, and that God would protect. If I could say right now, on behalf of the missionaries all around the world and in Southeast Asia, now is a very unsettling, difficult time. Pray for God to protect the missionaries. Uh, they are in a much more threat now than ever before uh it's there are much more threat of being robbed uh financially it's a much more dangerous 
place. People will rob because they're hungry. Uh, pray for uh, missionaries all around Southeast Asia, all around the world to be protected. If you could remember those things, bind stubbornness and idolatry, give us favour with the government and with the authorities. Open doors uh, into communities, open doors of opportunities into uh, the villages, communities, people's hearts, and pray for protection. Uh, missionaries always need protection uh, and pray for finances. And Pastor, I just want to say, just before uh, you close it off, I wanted to say thank you for your initiative in all that you do, uh, that you invite people for your monthly world outreach uh, initiative that you have in your church. It's a fantastic thing. I hope that people all around the world would watch that. I want to encourage you for this uh, podcast that you do. Uh, it is a great inspiration to be able to listen to these testimonies. I want to thank you, Pastor. I believe that God's using your life. Uh, your, your questions to me were insightful. I cannot believe the questions that you asked me that brought these, uh, these uh, landmarks out of my life that were the very things where God touched my life. And so uh, you have great wisdom and initiative on your life. I believe God's using you. I want to thank you for everything. It's a privilege to be your friend. God bless you. Well, <laughs> you're, you're too kind. I appreciate uh, your generous time that you've shared with us. And I believe that there's going to be people who are very inspired by it. I look up to you as a missionary and as a as a elder brother in the fellowship, and I, I appreciate you. Please greet your wife and um, just know that there's a lot of people who care about you and are praying for you, and that includes uh, us in our church here in Virginia Beach. So we appreciate that very much. And uh, for all of our listeners, we want to thank you. You've made it to the end of a, of a lengthy interview. We appreciate you joining us for this. And please, uh, if this has inspired you, we'd encourage you to share it with somebody. Share it with somebody who needs to hear it. Maybe somebody who is in the throes of a leadership challenge or uh, in the midst of a redirection and you, you, you want to see them make it for the Lord and maybe you want to hear an incredible, uh, you want them to hear this incredible testimony of how God uh, uh, saved Pastor O'Neill and his, his family and the, just the miracle testimony. Uh, I know some people that I'm going to be sharing this with and so I would encourage you to, to get the word out and um, we thank you for being uh, subscribed and we are so grateful to have you as a listener. So we'll see you next time on Testimony Tuesday. Once again, thank you, Pastor O'Neill, for joining us. We appreciate your time. Thank you, Pastor. God bless you. All right. Thanks, and have a great night. Okay, so that's the end of our recording. I, man, so, so great. So awesome. I appreciate you guys.